Welcome to the FishCast. Another weekend update here with Corey Long, Chris Demarest, and Charles Fishbein. We're going to be talking about the late, great Howard Schnellenberger and the impact he's had on college football. We're also going to discuss FSU, Miami, and South Florida spring games or spring scrimmages as they continue to get through spring football. We're also going to discuss University of South Florida, who just had their spring football game, FAU, who just finished up on Saturday their spring football game, and also spring practices at University of Miami and Florida State. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the FishCast. My name is Corey Long. I'm your host, joined here by the director of all things Elite Scouting Service, Charles Fishbean. How are you doing, Charles? Doing great, man. Doing great. The I'm also joined by former linebackers and defensive backs coach for North Carolina State, Hawaii, Rutgers, and pretty much every school in between those two, those three locations. Christopher <laughs> Demarest, how you doing, Coach D? See Long in the house. News coming out, um, sad news, unfortunately, coming out this weekend uh, with the passing of legendary coach Howard Schnellenberger at the uh, age of 87 years old, year old, 87, excuse me, 87 years old. Um, I mean, we can just go down the list of the accomplishments of Coach Schnellenberger. He was the offensive coordinator for the 72 Miami Dolphins, um, took over the University of Miami, basically created the U, created the, um, you know, in many ways, I, I credit him for creating the, um, you know, what what has become modern day, you know, the, the rush to recruit into South Florida, to get talent out of South Florida, to look at South Florida as a place to build a roster. Um, you know, he was at Miami. He won a national title there in 1983 against uh, Nebraska, considered one of the greater teams of all time. And it was really one of the great games of all time. Um, later left the, later left Miami, you know, he was going to go into USFL, ended up at Louisville, which was just a horrible football program at the time, but he led them to a Fiesta Bowl victory over Alabama. Spent a year at Oklahoma in the mid-90s. Wasn't really a fit for him. Wasn't a fit for the program. Uh, he was smart enough to realize that quickly and decide that one year was enough for him. Ended up at Florida Atlantic, where he built that program from scratch. Um, I've had many run-ins with the with Coach Nellenberger, some with Fish, some actually before I even met Fish, and uh, always an entertaining guy, one of the most entertaining guys you'll ever want to talk to. Uh, was very boastful about his, his impact in the area, especially down in Dade County and Broward County, and rightfully so. He brought a lot to the table. Um... You know, I, I don't know where we start with this one. I'm a, I'll let you guys take it, and we'll, we'll jump from there. But, you know, Coach uh, Howard Schnellenberger, he, he's had a presence down in Miami from – I mean, his presence really never left, you know. He was just that uh, – Miami's had a few coaches that have won titles, but something about Howard Schnellenberger and Jimmy Johnson, those two are – those two are the legends. Those are the two that, you know, they – they have sort. They sort of stood the test of time. Well, I'll say this: I've never met Coach Stellenberger, and but I've watched him from afar, like I said before, many, many times. And the things that he was able to do down in South Florida, 
uh, with the players, uh, with the coaching staffs, with the community, to get everybody behind this football program at UM. It was absolutely amazing to watch. And I did have a little connection with it. Um, I know a guy that I played against in high school and played on some all-star teams up here with uh, went down to play for him at the U um, before he left and Jimmy took over, but that was Danny Stubbs. And I hope you say if Danny Stubbs stayed up here locally, and went to school, you never heard about Danny Stubbs, but because he went down to university of Miami, got involved with the players and got involved with what coach Nellenberger was doing down there. He became an unbelievable player in a four, three scheme and ended up going to the NFL and have a great career. But I just was amazed what coach Nellenberger was able to do whatever stop he was at. Yeah. You know, you go back to even just watching the U documentary and, and I, I grew up being, you know, growing up down in Miami, University of Miami was just starting to get really good when I was growing up and he was a visionary. I mean, I, I, I believe, and I could be dead wrong on this, but I believe one of the reasons he left University of Miami is he felt they needed an on-campus football stadium at that time. And, you know, here he goes and, you know, he leaves, um, University of Miami, a lot of people believe that he would have had almost similar success to, to what Saban's done at Alabama or what uh, Bobby did at Florida State, that if he had stayed at University of Miami, that he would have been a legend even bigger and, and, than he already was. And that's just crazy that he would have won multiple national titles because he took over a program that, I mean, they used to give out tickets at Burger King. Like you, mm -hmm. you, you bought a Coca-Cola and you got a ticket to UM game. Like people didn't go to Miami games and they almost shut the program down at one point. Like he was the savior of that program. And he came in and he, he told people that we're going to win a national title here. And he delivered. And then, you know, he just had that vision of how he wanted to build the university of Miami and, and get it to where it was. Then he goes to Louisville. Like Corey said, they were terrible. And I'm almost, you know, I'm not 100% sure on this, but I think he helped build Papa John Stadium and build mm. that program and and built them into a, a very good, the program they are today. I mean, Louisville wasn't on the same par as a Florida State or a Miami, but he got it there and, and brought in a lot of talented guys. And like Corey said, they went to the Fiesta Bowl. And then he goes down to FAU and people are like, you're really going to start a football program at FAU? Like, that it's in Boca, like nobody's going to care. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to build a stadium. If I had told anybody that 20, 30 years ago, that FAU would have an on-campus football stadium before University of Miami, you would have, you would have first of all laughed, oh, well, they'll never have a football program. But the fact that he built that stadium and it's beautiful that anybody that hasn't been there, it's one of the nicest stadiums. You go to the top, you can see the ocean uh, coming in and it just, it's, it's a beautiful stadium and the facilities they built there. Um, he, he put that program on the map and I think it's a place now that a coach could go there and coach a long time and even retire there. Like it's going to be one of those places we've talked about UCF. It's like you could win there because there's so many great football players in just the tri-county area. But what's crazy is FAU has won with guys from Pensacola, from Jacksonville, he always believed. I remember uh, Howard was the one that said the state of Miami and basically his state of Miami was going up, going over to Orlando, going over to I-4 into Tampa, come down I-75. And that he, he felt if he roped off from half the state down that you could win a national title. And he was right. And the formula has been the same 
for all three Florida schools. When you recruit well in that state, you win national titles. When the top players leave, you see what happens. And, you know, he had that vision way before anybody, you know, I met him a bunch of times. He was all like, for as big time of a coach as he was, he always would give you the time of day when you walked in there. He wouldn't like blow you off or he wasn't these guys that thought, oh, I'm too big to sit and talk to this person. And he'd throw you a little knowledge. But, you know, you know, I didn't become, you know, this great friend of his at FAU, but I did get to meet him a few times. And I enjoyed the times that I did get to meet him, like Corey said. And what he's, I mean, the, what he's done, honestly, it's Hall of Fame at three different locations. And it's unbelievable. And I think he's going to be greatly missed, you know. You know, the impact that he had at those universities that he was at, and, and, and far reaching beyond that is amazing. You know, when you think about that Florida Atlantic football stadium, you're right, Fish. When you go to the top of that, it's the only school on the East Coast that you could be in the stadium and see the Atlantic Ocean. Nobody else could do that. Then you sit there and you watch those planes land uh, at the Boca Raton Airport, all those private jets landing over there. It's like amazing when you see that, that facility that they have there. But, but what he did at the U, when, like you said, he roped off that the state of Florida said we can win a national, the recipe's still the same to win a national championship down in Florida. The recipe's still the same, rope it off and keep the kids home. And some of them sneaking away to Clemson and Alabama now, but you're right. The recipe that he put together is exactly the same for the big three in order to win a national championship. But he, he did it. He did it so, so quietly. Sometimes didn't even know he was there. He just had that pipe and he would just talk and he would just do it. And, and there was no big flair about it. He just did it. I, uh, you know, I had a, I, I have a ton of Schnellenberger stories and I'll share a few of me. Fish talked about our time, you know, me and Fish used to go to FAU to hang out with uh, Coach Van Valkenburg, who was their, uh, I think it was their linebackers coach. Yeah. And we'd always see Coach Schnellenberg in his office, usually either either loading up his pipe or smoking the pipe. <laughs> and like you said, I mean, it, it came across – you know, he, he had the presence, but at the same time, he came across like a football coach. But he, he knew he had a wealth of knowledge in there. I remember a long time ago talking to uh, Alonzo Highsmith for a story that I was doing for ESPN and him telling me some great stories and, you know, the times that, you know, Howard Snellenberger would go recruiting his house and say, oh, well, we can't win a single game if Alonzo Highsmith is not part of the University of Miami roster in 19, you know, in 1982 or whenever. And it, it was all just, you know, it was all done and so much fun. Uh, what I loved about the coach is that he was a visionary. He always dreamed big. And I think that was part of the reason why he didn't stay at Miami and why he probably couldn't have stayed at Miami is because he wanted new challenges. The idea of, going to a place that was destitute at football like Louisville, you know, it, it really triggered that part of his brain. It just wanted to go somewhere and build something better. And I think, you know, when he finally got to FAU, he finally found his ultimate challenge, you know, building a football program from scratch. And I remember, you know, you remember that first year. I remember that first week and they get a ton of players suspended. I remember like, you know, there was like this crazy, you know, just couldn't, I remember like the, the, the roster that he planned to have for opening day and the one that he had were almost two different rosters. 
and it was a rough first season. And would you know by the second season, they make the excuse me, they make the semifinals of the FCS playoffs. You know, that's how quickly he could do it. That was that was that was the genius in him and the ability in him to to, to coach games and win. He was just a, a great winner. Um, you know, back in the early 2000s, the Florida, back when the Florida Association of Sports Writers existed, they used to have this um, coaches media day that would happen in August. And all the coaches from every college in Florida that played football, whether it was University of Florida or Edward Waters, they would all come for this two-day event that we held in Orlando. And they would each have 30 minutes to, um, you know, to talk to talk about their program, to answer questions, et cetera, et cetera. Bowden and Spurrier, later Bowden and Zook, and then Bowden and uh, Urban Meyer, they were always, that was always the big deal. You know, you get to, it was a chance to talk to Bobby Bowden. It was a chance to talk to whoever was coaching at Florida. Um, sometimes Larry Coker showed up. Sometimes he uh, would do it by phone because it was, it, the, the time always seemed to run around the time when he had a big booster event. But, if you weren't Bowden or Spurrier, you had to figure out a way to get a headline, to get into a notebook, to do something, to get some sort of press out of this event. Well, Schnellenberger, he decided that this was going to be where they debuted the idea. He wanted to build something similar to what Syracuse had in the Carrier Dome. This was his first vision. was like, going to build this big dome multi-purpose stadium and it's not just going to be for football they could do basketball there they could do track there they could do concerts they could do anything this big multi-purpose thing and you know he knew how to he you know it, it drew enough of our attention that when he was done with this presentation you know about five or six of us go off to the side and we start talking to him because we're really interested in this and he's just He's just laying it on thick because he knows he's going to get some press out of this. And his athletic department is going to be very happy with him. So I remember asking him a question, something to the point of that. You know, this sounds like a lot, Coach. You know, this program is just getting off the ground. What makes you think you can have a 50,000-seat dome stadium? You know, it seems kind of like a big dream. And he looks at me and he's like, Corey, when I went to the University of Miami and said, we're going to win a national title, that was a big dream. This is just money in construction. <laughs> <laughs> i tell you real quick, you know, he's a unique individual. Kids like playing for unique individuals. Deion Sanders, unique individual. Barry Switzer, unique individual. Coach Bobby Bowden, unique individual. You know, uh, Harold Stellenberger, unique individual that has that has an opportunity to back up with what they say. And they're unique and they're different. And kids like to play for guys like that. And that's why I think he had a lot of success. This, the day the cookie cutter guy is over with. They want guys that are different, unique, that think out of the box. You know, those are the kind of guys that kids want to play for. And that's why I think Coach Stellenberger was so successful. Yep. You got, you got, you know, the point it makes too, is you got to be able to recruit, you know, and yep. it doesn't matter. Everybody today has all the technology to figure out what coaches are doing or how to scheme or this or that, you know, so many people are like, Oh, coaching, 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 listen, you're only as good as the players you get. And, and that's, you know, Howard was, uh, 
he knew you needed the big time players from South Florida and, and, and central Florida. And he, he roped that area off and he, he won championships. And I think he brought the level up of all the school. Look, I, I think him winning created Florida state to get, you know, under Bobby, it, it, it pushed them to, uh, greater uh, things to strive for in University of Florida. And then all of a sudden UCF and UCF got programs. And then it, I, it's like, I think the whole reason this state is where it's at football wise is mainly because of him, you know, and what he's done and same with the, uh, coach Bowden, these guys were legends, but they also did so much for the game. And that's why we, I believe we have the best football anywhere in the country because of them. 100%. You know, we, you know, real quick is that, see, I had the pleasure and the fortunate to work for Coach Bowden. He's a very unique individual. He's different. And, and that's what made him successful. He was very good at coaching and recruiting and, and dealing with boosters and the fans and the, everything like that. But he was just a very unique individual. Well, you know, I think, and you know, Coach, you say it's unique. I think it's, uh, I have another word. I call it authenticity. Um, yes. And I think there's just there's something authentic about those coaches of that last era, you know, the way they carried themselves there. You know, these days when you, we see recruiting, you see the guy, they're, you know, they're guys, they, they're all different personalities, but, you know, they're wearing those the same style of, you know, polo yep. shirts, whether they're with Nike or Under Armour or whoever. You know, Coach Snellenberger had the pipe. That's what that's yep. what differentiated him from every other from the other coaches was that he was going to leave his pipe everywhere he went recruiting. So there were about there were <laughs> about thirty kids walking through Miami high schools that had a smoking had a smoking pipe. Uh, you know, Bobby Bowden had that had that great memory of meeting your mom and knowing the <laughs> meal. You know, he he was very good at figuring out what he what he had at dinner at everyone's house. You know, there was this level of authenticity, and that's what I think kids gravitate. Yeah. I mean, you look at the names that Coach Snellenberger recruited: Alonzo Highsmith, Melvin Pratt, Jerome Brown. Oh, you know, my buddy Kenny Calhoun, who made the uh, game-winning play in the Orange Bowl, who batted down the pass from Turner Gill. I mean, you know, you go, you go so many, so many different directions. You, you just they, as Fish said, they went to about a, you know, they went about 200 miles north. And, you know, about 200 miles wide, and they got players. And they got a ton of players. And, you know, he was a, he was a coach that understood that, hey, I'm only going to be successful if I got great players. And that's what all the coaches taught him. That's what the guys that he learned under. Paul Brown and Don Shuler and Blanton Collier and all these guys, Bear Bryant, they all taught him. You know, that was something he learned by observing and watching and say, why are all these coaches winning all these games? They've got great football players. Yes. You know? you know, I mean, he's not, he's not in the hall of fame, which is a little disappointing. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I think it, you know, I think cause you know, his one loss record is what it is. I think he's a few games, maybe 10 games over 500, but with a coach like that, it's so little about the wins and losses, you know, it's a little about just the accumulating a gaudy record. He was a different guy, you know, he different. went to bad programs and was willing to, take the lumps to change them and not a lot of guy, not a lot of coaches of his stature would be willing to do that yeah you gotta wonder now that he's passed away if that changes because it's got to you know i mean what he did at miami um miami wouldn't be where it is today if it wasn't for coach like i said i i remember you know they they almost shut their program down or they were talking about like not having football anymore and howard came in and 
basically changed the whole dynamic of that program. But then what he did, like we've talked about, what he did at Louisville and the FAU, I mean, he wanted three different programs and Louisville was his, was a mess. And then he went to FAU and built that thing from scratch. It's not like that's an easy thing to do. Um, you always got to give credit. It's, you know, it's, it's very difficult to go to these schools and start from literally, uh, you know, trailers outside the, as football facilities and turn it into a program. And, you know, kids had so many choices and he made FAU uh, a good place for kids to go. And, and you look at the success they've had now, they've, you know, they've turned it around and each of these coaches, I think have um, benefited from what he built there. And I just, for him not to, you're talking, I thought he was in the hall of fame. The fact that he's not yeah. is truly remarkable. Um, and then, you know, here was a guy that was the offensive coordinator of the 72 Dolphins. So it's not like he hasn't had success everywhere he's gone. Um, yeah. I, I, I've got to imagine that uh, you're going to see his name pop up in the Hall of Fame discussions at some point. See, all these coaches, they're visionaries. A lot of coaches are visionaries. They can foresee this or I see that. But to implement it, act on it, and actually make it happen is a different thing. Everybody's a visionary. Everybody sees something, but to be able to act upon it, actively go make it happen, and then put it into process is a whole different ball game, and that's what he was able to do. One, I'll leave it on this one other Schnellenberger tale, and it was from this same weekend, this Florida Sports Writers Association weekend, and we're, we're going, I forget who asked him about some of the older days, and Miami played Florida a lot in the 70s and 80s, but it was always difficult the, the, the contracts of the games were always difficult. Like Miami didn't, Florida didn't want to come down to Miami too often. So it would be like, we'll play a game in Gainesville and then we'll have to play a game in Orlando or at Tampa Stadium or something. And, and Schnellenberger gets then, I guess they're trying to work out a four-year deal and they want, you know, two games in Gainesville and two games somewhere else. And they're, they're jostling. And they finally, they came down to an agreement where, they would play each one game each in their home stadium, and they'd play one game at the Citrus Bowl in Orlando and one game at the old Sombrero and Tampa Stadium. So when they, they get out, it's these old days, you know, where all these deals were done in smoky rooms. So, like, you'd have media that would be sitting outside while they're in some room trying to negotiate this, and they'd come out and have this joint press conference and announce that from, you know, 1979 to 82, Florida and Miami are going to play here, here, here. So – he figures this out, and I think uh, trying to think of the name of the Florida coach. It wasn't Galen Hall; it was a guy before him. I can't think of his name on the top of my head, but it was uh, it was there one coach that got Charlie Pell. Charlie Pell got busted a lot of cheating. Yeah, Charlie Pell. So he ends up. So they end up coming out with this deal, and Howard tells Charlie Pell, he's like, "Oh, you know, I'll make the announcement, coach," because Pell was probably a little embarrassed he couldn't get the extra game in Gainesville like all of his predecessors did. So Howard Schnellenberg comes out to this group of reporters and like, oh, I've got a great announcement to make. Thanks to the generosity of the University of Florida Gators, as he would call them, University of Florida Gators, the Miami Hurricanes football team will be beating them all across the state of Florida over the next four years. <laughs> no. <laughs> We're going to go from city to city and county to county. Beating the Florida Gators. I tell you what, that at the U, he had that Orange Bowl, man. That Orange Bowl was, that was very, 
magical that place and I, I missed the heck out of it I'm sure I'm not the only one but he had that man and that place was magical yeah yeah and I tell you I don't miss the concrete seats there but I do miss the aura <laughs> of the place no doubt about that oh man a lot of great games there oh I, I mean I from the Notre Dame's to the Notre Dame game with uh Tim Brown to Edron James running all over UCLA it, oh. it just something about that stadium that in the fourth quarter, yep. something magical, like it, literally yep. everything that could go wrong for the visiting team <laughs> and everything that could go right for the home team always. I mean, I was there for the, the Ron Zook, the team that, you know, I mean, Brock Berlin brought his team back. It just, I don't know how many come from behind games I was there, but a lot of them and, and that place was special. And he, he, mm. he made that place special. I mean, you know, they he made University of Miami more popular than the Miami Dolphins in yep. Miami. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yep. My memory of the Orange Bowl was the '86. They were playing Oklahoma. It was a one versus two early in the year. I think it might have been last week of September, first week of October, and it's a noon game. They got a hot mic on the official who's making the um, you know announcements, the coin toss, and everything. Jerome Brown and Brian Brian Bosworth are just cursing each other out, just <laughs> unfiltered. I'm I'm nine or ten years old watching this with my dad. I'm looking at him like, should I be listening to this? It's <laughs> getting really graphic out there. Oh, you're right about that, Fish. There's stories that there was clubs down in South Beach where the University of Miami Hurricane players were walking right in, and they turn around and look. And the university at the Miami Dolphin players are waiting in line. Hey, man, can you guys get us in? It was yeah. unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's, it's crazy, man. Hey, yeah. Howard's, Howard's was a big reason of that. And then Jimmy, that right. Jimmy Johnson took it to another level. But, uh, yep. you know, that's what made college football. So that's that's what yes. made me get into it and start watching it was uh, being down here in Miami and seeing that stuff. But um, it was, you know, a great, a great era of football, man. And, and Howard will be missed. Absolutely. Yep. Some happenings over the weekend. A lot of live football played, sort of live football, I guess, at least tackle football, contact football. Fish was out at Florida Atlantic for their annual spring game. We had operatives up at Florida State for their second spring scrimmage, and we had operatives down at Miami for their spring scrimmage. So, first fish. You were at FAU. What did you see? You know, it was, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know if there'd be fans out there. They had, you know, 1,500 fans. I mean, I, there was no social distancing. And it was nice to actually get out and see people in a stadium and, and honestly enjoying themselves. I, it, it's like normality's back. You know, like you feel like uh, normal life is exists. It, it started to get kind of wacky the last year, but I thought FAU looked really good. Um, I told you that, you know, they brought in some nice pieces. Johnny Ford, um, who was at USF and had a big impact at USF, he made big plays yesterday. Um, he's not the biggest guy. I, if he's five six with, uh, you know, clogs on, <laughs> he he's not a big guy, but he can run fast. <laughs> When he gets in the open field, it literally looked like, you know, uh, the, the coyote and, and, and that whole situation. And, you know, he, he's just super fast and he's going to give them a big play. Um, I think Johnny Ford 
can play at a lot of schools. It's crazy that he's going to FAU and they they stole a big time target. He's going to help on special teams. He'll help on offense. Um, you know, they got they also got uh, this quarterback transfer from Penn State, Michael Johnson. And you know, I know Dave doesn't want to hype the kid too much, but I'll hype him for him. I I thought the kid has the potential to take FAU to another level. I mean, he's he's a looked really really good yesterday was able to push the ball down the field. Um, you know, the, you, they have like the touch rules with the quarterbacks taking off, but he had plays where there was one run. He literally made like two guys miss and run into each other and picked up about 15 yards. He showed his legs. He's a true dual threat uh, player. Um, that defensively, they're very stout. They're not big, but they're old school Florida football. You know, fast run of the football, four, five, six defenders. Uh, get tackling a lot of gang tackling. Um, it looked like a typical spring game, but I think FAU is going to have a pretty good football team next year. They play a tremendous schedule, so it may not show in the record, but Willie's got that thing going in the right direction. Uh, they had the number one recruiting class last year, according to all the networks in the, in the um, American conference, I believe they're in or conference USA, one of the two conferences, but um, you know, he's done a good job and, you know, you got to like what they're doing there. I, I think that they have a chance to be a team to, um, you know, have a good season and then go to a bowl game and maybe beat a team from one of the top, you know, the uh, power five conferences. Coach, when a spring game is usually the culmination of the, of the spring practice season, it's a, you know, they, they generally get, you know, they generally get a lot of hype fans get kind of excited. It's their first taste of what they're going to see in the new, with, with a new team, you know, maybe you get to see a new recruit or a new quarterback or something. What did you always try to get out of the spring game itself, being a competitive guy like you are? Well, you know, there's a lot of new things going on in the spring. There's a lot of kids playing new positions. There's a lot of kids playing the positions for the first time. You have early enrollees. You have kids coming off the transfer portal. So there is a lot of enthusiasm and excitement coming out of spring because you're kind of excited about what these kids could do. When you get to the spring game, however, it's more of a vanilla thing. And being a secondary coach, I would just say, listen, guys, I just don't want to get burnt deep. Okay. Don't let anybody get us over the top. I didn't want to do that during the regular season. I don't want to do it in the spring game. I don't want them hooting and hollering because they caught a 60, 70 yard touchdown pass on us. If they're going to score, let them work their way down the field and earn every, earn every yard that they get. But don't let them score any big plays. Let them, you know, earn everything they get. And what the offensively you're trying to say is, hey, we want a couple big plays. We want to try to scorch them over the top. We want to hit, hit them for a big run. So I think if, you, and if you're the head coach, you're kind of saying, well, who do you cheer for? My offense, defense, what do you do? You know, a lot of times they get caught in the middle. But you do want to see some things that excite you. But you really don't want to see anything that's really devastating because then you're like, oh, boy, we got trouble there. So it's kind of a, a kind of a balance that you want to see coming out of the game because you saw a lot of those big plays and different things like that accumulate over spring practice itself. In practice, you saw some things that you liked. So that's usually what you have as you start to come out of the spring game. One quick question, Demo. Can you be really crappy during the spring and it's just you're trying to get the kinks out and then in the fall you, all of a sudden magic happens? Or can you tell like in the spring, all right, yeah, we had some, pro but if you have a lot of problems in spring, are, are you in trouble in the fall? Like if you're one of those programs and you're coming out of spring, 
and you don't like what you saw is are there chances that maybe it was just spring football it's just practices you're going to get better in the fall or, or are you basically shit out of luck I think you have a pretty good indicator coming out of spring where your football team is now I know you got some some kids coming in next year right that really excite you but they're going to be young kids they are going to make young mistakes they might be more talented than the kids you have on on your program right now and they're going to add to that in the fall camp and into the season and that's going to be great you're going to get excited about it but they're going to make young mistakes which a lot of kids do you know which is fine but I think you have a good indicator coming out of spring where your team is because you have to really rely on the kids coming out of spring that are going to be the nucleus of your football team. And if you do that, then you have an idea, hey, we can compete. We have a pretty good idea. We can probably beat these teams. These teams, we need this and these teams, we need that. So you kind of understand who your competition is and who they graduated and who they're bringing in because you probably experienced the same kids recruiting on the recruiting trail. So you have an idea where your team's going to be coming into the fall, but very rarely do you have a terrible, terrible spring and all of a sudden come in the fall and light it up. Although you can improve your, your overall team ability with some of those young kids coming in. Moving on to, um, moving on to the other games. Again, I actually, actually meant to actually omitted USF who also had their spring game yesterday. And uh, actually I'll talk a little bit about USF spring game. Jeff Scott's second year. We all saw what we saw in the first year. It was a weird year for everybody. Um, the big thing out of coming out of their spring game was that it looks like they've got their quarterback, uh, Cade Fortin, a transfer from North Carolina, had a big spring game. I think he had about two or three touchdown passes yesterday. Got the fans extremely excited. Um, Jaron Williams, who we both remember was at the University of Miami, also was at USF now. Didn't look probably played well enough to be the backup, but I don't think he's going to end up getting a lot of snaps as long as uh Cade Fortin does what he's supposed to do. Overall, in year two, where do we see Jeff Scott in this program? They've got they've had some building to do, but I felt like what they did in the second half of last season. They could really build on that, especially how well they were doing offensively. You know, Corey, we talked about it last year. I, I talked to you after a few of the USF games. They were terrible early on. I mean, it just, they were a bad football team. And by the end of the season, while they weren't winning games, you can see the improvement they made by the end of the year. And and that's coaching. Um, you know, they weren't going to win last year just because they had so many holes that they had to fill. Uh, both of us thought they had a very good recruiting class. Um, he's bringing in um, J- uh, John, uh, Jimmy Horn's son, um, that, or Joe Horn's son that played uh, for the Saints. He's going to give them a big threat, play threat. They have guys that now could stretch the field and score a lot. And I think Jeff Scott understands one thing. If we're going to lose – lose with exciting football. Let's not lose 17, 10, 14, 10. Let's put points on the board and then we can recruit around these holes. And I believe by year three next year, they're going to be a team that's going to be close to competing for the title in that conference. There's just too much talent in this state. He's too good of a coach. He's a very good recruiter. Um, You've already seen what the loss of him at Clemson I mean, Clemson fans want to jump off, you know, rooftops right now because their recruiting isn't the same. And the reason is, is you start losing the Jeff Scotts, 
uh, of uh, those guys that helped. And I, I used to see Jeff Scott everywhere in Jack, I, Jacksonville. If I called him and I was like, hey, Coach Scott, you got to check out this kid. Within 30 minutes, he'd hit me back and be like, hey, I watched this film. We sent him an offer. Like, he's very aggressive as a recruiter. I could just imagine as a coach, he's got to have the same qualities. And I got to ex- I expect UCF to be right back in the mix um, as one of the top teams in that conference. There's no reason for it. Uh, you know, we, we've seen the floor with Skip Holtz and, and the end of the Charlie Strong era. And it's sad, but it's a program that's been, that's shown that when you have a coach that's motivated um, and that's willing to take some risk, that you're going to win a lot of ball games there. And I don't, ex- I expect Jeff Scott to turn that program around. And within two to three years, he will be a name that you hear mentioned uh, for bigger programs. And that's just the reality of what's going to happen, in my opinion. So you made a good point, Fish. When you lose top recruiters off your staff that either get head coaching jobs or move on to other programs, I don't care what anybody says, they are hard to replace. When you've got a good guy that pounds the pavement, goes out and recruits for your program and brings players in, and then you lose him, He's hard to replace. And that's what you see going on at Clemson from what I don't know, Jeff Scott, but from what you're telling me, he was that kind of guy. And, and it's going to pay dividends for USF here shortly, but you can see the impact already it's having on Clemson. And it goes to the other thing that I was saying, and, and really it's a little off the topic, but see, and I'll talk about it another time. I don't want to waste the, uh, the audience's time right now, but yes, those guys are very hard to replace and, where they end up, you just got to give them a little bit of time, but they'll turn that place around because they love to recruit. Yeah, I, I mean, you just go look, Dima. I'm telling you, this guy had a major impact. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, on Deshaun Watson going to uh, Clemson, he had yep. a major uh, impact in Trevor Lawrence going there. You just don't replace those guys. When Mark Rick left Florida State, it was basically the downfall of their program. Bobby sure. never replaced them, and it, it's. You know, it's just part it, – it's hard to replace great coach. You know, Alabama's been able to do it, but I think they are honestly – they're the outlier. I just don't think what they're doing it, – it's honestly – it's it's almost unrealistic to believe it will ever be done again. Usually when you lose a great coach and great recruiter, you see the impact right away. See, a lot of the guys – used to be like, oh, I, I got I to gotta get a quantity. I got to get a quantity. I got to reach my quota. It's not the quantity. It's the quality of player you recruit. How much does that guy that you have impact your program where you are? How much does he, does he play early and often, and does he help that team win? Does he build the character of that team? Is he a leader on that team? And if he is, you might only need to get three or four of those guys a year, two guys a year, where these other guys are trying to bring in six and seven to reach a quota, and they're not even players. And I used to shake my head like, what are we doing? But but some of these guys are impact players like that, and you only need a couple of them a year, but you get the right ones, they can transform your whole team. Unlike a basketball team, because you're only dealing with five guys, football's a little different, but at their quarterback position is definitely one of them. Hey, Demo, you're one of those coaches. You could go one for five, but if that thing was an elephant, man, we knew you. And I got it, him. It, I was happy as heck. Hey, man. <laughs> happy as heck. Either. You can either go after an elephant or five chipmunks, you know? You got it. <laughs> and the guy will be all happy. I got five chipmunks here. The kid never played here, never helped us with a championship, never did anything. But you're happy as can be. You still got a job. I'm glad I brought this one kid in that's a player. He's helping us win football games. 
Oh, so, man. anyways, I get, again, different ways to skin a cat, I guess. Yeah. Speaking of big-time recruits, we go down to the University of Miami where it was the first chance for fans to at least get an idea of what they might have in blue-chip quarterback. Wait J-Bank. a second, Corey. I hate to interrupt you. Miami was was not an open scrimmage. But... Yeah, I know. I know it wasn't. All that was right. my point. I said it was fans to get an idea. Not to see, but to get an idea. I know it wasn't an open scrimmage, but, I mean, they still they got the uh, the numbers that came out of there were promising. And clearly, that's enough to get fans excited. What we heard was that Jake Garcia completed about, what, 90% of his passes were over 180 yards? Yeah. Fans don't have to see that. Yeah. Good fans point. get excited just by that number. I don't care who it was against. We don't know, we, we don't know if it was against the third team, the fourth team, the coaches. We don't know who it was against. Wait a second. So, should, listen, when you're good, you're good. Yes. You know? So you're saying, like, when fans judge a guy because, oh, he, he's really better, but the guy had, like, five drops. Well, maybe the guy didn't throw a catchable ball, you know? Well, the other thing you're talking about is we talked about again <laughs> on this segment a few times. Is the quarterback live? Is he getting hit? Is he under pressure? Is he is he is he being able to utilize all the stuff he has, or is he well protected, knowing ah, I could throw this ball just a little bit later beyond the money because nobody's going to hit me from behind? Yeah. So you don't I know mean, if all these things went went into uh, the evaluation. Yeah, I I I I know this. Garcia's was a top-rated quarterback. The kid. Uh, goes and leaves to Georgia because he wasn't able to play in California. He ends up going and taking a team to a state championship and winning it. Uh, and now he's on campus early at Miami and he's already making an impact. I don't think it's by accident. This kid was the real deal coming out of high school. Miami's got an option uh, in case uh, King isn't 100% healthy and they, their future looks bright because they're bringing in these type of talents. And by the way, um, they just also landed Jacuri Brown, who's a top-rated quarterback at Georgia. So not not only do they have talent at the starting position, they're starting to stack their roster from top to bottom at that position as well. What did our previous, uh, our most recent podcast guests say about quarterback play? If you don't have one, you're basically playing left-handed, which as a lefty, I take some offense to that. But end of the day, Miami's definitely being right-handed about their quarterback situation. And we know the segue to this one. Huh? I know we know the segue for the next part. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, no, we're not not going to go there. Um, well, yeah, I mean, FSU had their second spring scrimmage. Um, one thing I'll say, and this is something you call from the beginning, I think more than ever it's clear that Jordan Travis – is going to be the starter to start the season as long as he stays healthy. He seems to be so much further ahead of Mackenzie Milton and Tate Rodemaker. I think – I'm not sure if he does everything like Mike Norvell and Kenny Dillingham want, want him to do, but his ability to make plays when a play jumps off schedule and – at Florida State, with that offensive line, it's going to be off schedule quite a bit. It's going to be off schedule like Amtrak. That I think, you know, I don't see, I don't see any way around him not being the starting quarterback there. He's He is their version of Ryan Fitzpatrick. No matter how many times you try to kill the guy, no matter how many times you try to bench him, somehow this kid keeps popping his head up. 
and and we discussed it. Um, I think he's going to be the starter against Notre Dame. I don't believe he'll be the starter by the end of the year. I think eventually McKenzie will get it together and be the guy, but it's going to take time. Um, Jordan knows the offense. He was in it for over a year now. He's been around these coaches. He's been around these players. He won games and won the respect of those players. I think they fight for him. And that's why he's going to be the starter. Eventually, uh, you know, I don't believe he could survive a whole season because of his style of play. And that's why Milton's going to get a shot or, you know, maybe the team's win-loss record isn't what it wants to be at that point. But I do believe McKenzie will come in around week three or four or maybe week five and eventually become the starter. But Jordan Travis will be the – I'm just saying it right now, and you can hold me to it. You have a recording of it. I think Jordan Travis will be the starter uh, against Notre Dame. And and I think that's a a good thing. I don't think it's a bad thing because I think he actually gives them – some options with his ability to run and also throw and uh, he'll be able to do some things with an offensive line that's still trying to get pieced together uh, has not been 100% healthy I believe uh, Devontae Love Taylor's been out for most of the spring Florida State uh, just lost one of their depth guys in Thomas Schrader who they wanted to uh, compete for the starting center job this is an offensive line that um, needs needs to kind of start growing together, getting five guys that have taken a ton of snaps together, because that's how you're going to get better. Uh, the biggest problem FSU's had on the offensive line the last couple of years, I don't think they've started the same five guys for more than one or two games in a row. And you're not going to win a lot of ball games if those guys don't know where each other is supposed to be at. But um, we've seen it again that Jordan Travis had the best numbers coming out of this last spring game, and it's not surprising. Um, I guess – my my um with both Miami and FSU, I would love to see a few more defensive updates. I think fans get so caught up on offense that they don't realize that there's enough that you know that the you know they're being matched up against the defenses, whether it's your ones or your twos or your threes. And uh the one thing that concerns me about FSU was there's just not a lot coming out, even though apparently their defense had a great scrimmage yesterday. There's not a lot coming out. Like, I don't – I'm still trying to recognize where the potential game changers are, and I haven't – I'm not there yet. Well, Corey, a lot of that is because, one, your playmakers usually come off the back end. And when your front four is not getting pressure, you're just not going to see a lot of bad passes from the quarterbacks, especially in these scrimmages. you got to put pressure on the quarterback. I think I don't believe they're getting that pressure in these scrimmages. And and you can see a lot of a lot of the numbers that the quarterbacks are having are more a lot of them are, you know, I was joking around, a lot of them are drop passes. So they obviously have had time to throw uh the quarterbacks. And and that's the concerning thing. Florida State, I don't think, had a defensive end last year with more than one or two sacks. That's unacceptable. I don't care if you're at Florida State or if you're at FIU or if you're at Bethune Cookman. Like you're not going to win ball games if you have one sack, you can't get pressure. Demo will tell you this as a coach. The secondary could have four All Americans back there, and if they got a cover for five, six, seven seconds, it's not going to matter. the The quarterback's going to find a guy open, and you're going to get beat, and you're going to be in a lot of high scoring games. Florida State has to figure out, and you haven't seen a lot of it from these reports. They're going to have to find a pass rush. And, and I know they're going to rely on this guy from Georgia, but 
teams are going to figure out that that's the only pass rusher on their team, you're going to have to find a guy on the other side that could bring the heat. Now, I don't know if that's going to be one of the young guys, Patrick Payton or the George Wilson kid, but they have to find somebody, whether it's Amari Gaynor, one other player that can give them pass rush from both sides because as an offensive coordinator, all you have to do is help help out on that side uh, of that one great player, and you could basically negate that guy. And it's not going to matter. You're going to have the same problems you've had. You're going to have a guy that's just standing out there getting blocked all day. And um, they got to find guys in that front seven, war daddies like Demo likes to call them, that could get after the the quarterback. I mean, Florida State's had guys in the back end that weren't great in the past. But when they've had those guys up front, how many of those guys have made interceptions or big plays because the ability of the front four? That's well, the other thing is, do, do you have to put pressure? Do you have to blitz in order to put pressure on a quarterback? Or can you rush four guys and put pressure on a quarterback? Now, yes, that helps your secondary. When you have to blitz to put pressure on the quarterback, the blitz better hit home. You better have done your homework defensively to be able to scheme it up for those blitzes to hit home. Or, yes, those those uh, those DBs are covering for more than two, three seconds. you got a problem. Demo, so, I've, I've, I've spoken know, to guys. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I've spoken to some guys okay. that have gone to both scrimmages. They have gotten zero. They, they're going to have to blitz a lot yeah. this year to get pressure. Yeah. And I just – I think no matter – yeah, you're going to put your – they have talent on the back end. I mean, Florida State, Corey will tell you this. They have a lot of talent on the back end. But their front four, front seven, you, you it would be unrecognizable to you. There's guys that would not even have been on the scout team that are going right. to be in the two deep when you were right. there that are going to play this year that are just not good enough. And that's right. – they're, they're playing guys that just – I don't care how good of a coach you are. It, pass rushing skills. If you can't get off the ball and beat the tackle off the ball, you're in trouble. I mean, yeah. it's just that's that's an issue that they're going to have to figure out. And I don't know if they're going to be able to do it with the group they have right now. Well, your offense has to help your defense too. You know, <laughs> the old saying is if you can run the ball a little bit, control the clock a little bit and help your defense and keep them off the field, if your offense can do that, then, then you'll be a little more successful defensively. But if you've got to rely on your defense all the time and your offense is three and out, then you've got a problem. Well, I think that's another reason Jordan Travis is going to start this year because mm -hmm. his ability on third and eight to pick up 10 yards, and mm -hmm. you know, that extra four plays in college football is huge. Well, there's I mean, no doubt just, about it. You, you, get, you get to take another three to four minutes off the clock that's three to four minutes that your defense is on the sideline as a defensive coordinator. You love that. I mean, Absolutely. you're like, all right, man, I've got five more minutes to get my defense ready. You could do a lot more on that side of the ball. And you know what, if they could get some leads and you put these other teams in passing situations, that's probably another thing. It's if the offense could just do their part, the defense will probably just be, play better just because they're going to be playing with leads instead of always trying to come from behind. No, there's no doubt about it. And, you know, when I was at Florida State, I would love the West Coast teams and the Northern teams to come down and play us in the sun because what you just said about giving your defense or offense time to rest because your other guys are on the sideline or on the field, you have an opportunity from the rest. But I used to love bringing those other teams down to Florida, having a 1 o'clock game right in the middle of the sun, and all of a sudden they look like war daddies in the first two quarters in the second half. They're done. And I remember that happened in the USC. I remember USC 98, I believe it was, 
or 99, I can't remember. They were coming out of the locker room in Florida State, and I was like, holy smokes, you look at these guys. But then all of a sudden, in the second quarter, they were done because they couldn't put up with the heat in Florida. So people down in Florida got to start using that advantage, that 1 o'clock game right in the middle of baking sun to bring these other teams in there and make sure that they're ready to play. Yep. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, it's been another educational, entertaining week of the fish cast. Yep. Always appreciate you guys and your time. I appreciate uh, you coming on, man. Want to do this again next week? No doubt, no doubt. We got Demo's comfortable now. He's he's all (laughs) settled in. Jesse finally got his you know microphone working. It took about two and a half hours today. I don't know how Demo does Zoom on a rotary phone. He's have to explain (laughs) it. <laughs> hey, listen, I try to get it to work yeah. on my laptop. I can't figure it oh, out, man. so I just got it on my hey, phone. Hey, you got to call Justin. He will get it done. He'll get it done. But, uh, hey, man, for our fans, you can follow us. Uh, we have, you know, Twitter, the Fish Cast, and uh, we'll get Justin to finally fit, uh, change that over on Twitter. We need to get our Twitter thing done instead of uh, the, the Mac and Fish, but it's a fish podcast, and you can follow us, and, uh, you know, we have – we look forward to seeing you guys next week, man. And uh, thanks, thanks to you guys for another great show. Hey, same thing. Great to hear from you guys. And uh, stay tuned, people. Take care, guys. Bye.